Um, last week, I made a statement that uh, basically said that, that we have some forgotten virtues, that today it's difficult for us in some ways, that, that uh, when we find a person of virtue, it's almost like it surprises us, like, wow, somebody found you know, $1,000 in a wallet and turned it in and it got back to the owner, they didn't just keep it. That's a real honest person. And um, when we meet those kind of people, it kind of throws us a little bit. And last week we talked about uh, what it meant to um, uh, deal with the forgotten virtue of honor. And uh, if you missed that message, let me encourage you to go um, either download our app if you haven't done that, or go on our app to the message section. You can see that message. Um, or else go on our website and uh, to the message archives, and there's, uh, you can watch it there as well. But these are um, really important for us as we grasp uh, moving forward with our life. So today, um, we're gonna talk about our second forgotten virtue, and that is the virtue of purity. Doesn't it make you feel warm inside that your pastor wants to talk to you about purity? It's, isn't that great? Uh, you know, so, so as we look at this, um, how many of you today would say that um, uh, our world bombards us constantly with thoughts and actions and requests for us to, to maybe want us to become impure. In fact, I think um, as I look at some of the advertising techniques, uh, one of the great successes of advertising is to, is to convince us that, that we're lacking something and that we need something else and it's not always the best thing and, and maybe it's to make us more vain and that's not pure to think about you know, being more vain with some things. But purity is, is a forgotten vir virtue. And if um, the question becomes this morning, what if we worked as hard at um, becoming pure in our values and pure in our thoughts and, and pure in our actions, what if we spent time actually working on that? And what would it look like if through our purity we drew closer to God? Um, in Galatians chapter five, the Apostle Paul um, writes some pretty specific words. And, and Paul, this is kind of what I call um, Paul's way of breaking the ice for us. And, and sometimes when we, when we read Galatians 5, we kind of cut it off and we snapshot things and say, okay, this is all that we have to be concerned about. But let's look at what he writes here. Um, he says, as he, as he talks about in Pure Lives, he says the actions that are produced by selfish motives, and what he means by that is the actions that we choose to do through our flesh, whether it's you know, thought, word, or deed, that those actions are obvious. So he says that it shouldn't catch us off guard when we choose to do things that aren't impure because we, it's, it's obvious that it's out there. But listen to what he writes. He says, since they include sexual immorality, let me explain this word. It's a Greek word called pornea. That's what Paul uses. Uh, we also get in the English vernacular the word pornography from this. And what it means is, is that we're, we're making the flesh unpure. And what he's specifically talking about in many of the New Testament writers is it was a call to fidelity. It was a call to fidelity. It was a call to, to make sure that if you're in the marital covenant, that you stay, uh, that you have fidelity with your, with your loved one in marriage, that you're not straying off. But it's also a call for those that are single, that you remain celibate in, single, in singleness. So he's talking about fidelity and he's talking about um, uh, celibacy uh, in those aspects. So that's what he means by sexual immorality. Um, he says that um, we have moral corruption, we have doing whatever feels good, idolatry, drug use. Now here's one that I never thought would make it, casting spells. You know, casting spells, um, hate, fighting, obsession, losing your temper, competitive opposition. You know, I'm reading some of these going like, oh my gosh, how many of these have I been? 
you know. Um, conflict, selfishness, group rivalry, jealousy, uh, drunkenness, partying, and then he says, and other things like that. So, so we have to be careful when we read this passage that we don't just make this list and say, well, Paul says as long as I'm not like moving around in this list of things, then my life is pure. But he's talking about that this is just kind of a summary. And, and in my mind, when I, read this, when, the, when I read the scripture, what it says to me is none of us can make it in life without Christ that all of us in some way are gonna slip up and fall and, and, and have a challenge and a tragedy is gonna come from there. So Paul doesn't say that it's just this little list, but he says it's actually quite greater than that. Truth be known, um, we live uh, in an impure, anything goes as long as, as long as I'm not hurting anybody kind of society. Um, I can kind of do what I want as long as it's not offending you or hurting you, then it must be okay. And I think scripturally what we find out from this is is that the scripture tells us that that's not really the best definition. In fact, it's not the right definition of, of how we should live our life. But the scripture says that, that it is a constant call for you and me to live a life of holiness before a very holy God. So let me pause for a minute and, and just um, kind of look at a couple of things here. So, so Paul says that, that it's the things that we do in the flesh. And this is really important because what he's saying to us is, is that it's through our flesh that we become impure. It's by the words that I say. If I, if I am tearing you down, if I am destroying the image of God in you as a person because I am just railing and tearing you down and calling you names, I'm being impure in my words. If my thoughts are not holy thoughts, if my thoughts are corrupt, then my mind is being impure. If the things that I do with my hands and, and the works that I do with my hands or the way in which I use my body, so to speak, in working that it's not kingdom-oriented, Paul would say we must be careful that we are not moving into an unholy life. He says that, that we should strive to be holy as God is holy. Now, this might be new stuff for some folks. And, and for some of us, we're, we're new to this Christianity thing. And, and some of us were raised where we thought that, that, that the church was only gonna tell us all the things we weren't supposed to do. Or the church is gonna tell us all the bad things against us. And that's not what I'm doing today. I mean, I've been a pastor of this church for um, nine years now. And I think over nine years, you've come to know my heart. You've come to know who I am as a person. But, but there's also that sense of that we're on this journey together, aren't we? And that we are here to help build up each other in the image of Christ and out of that live the life that we strive in Christ. But realizing that none of us are perfect and none of us, um, uh, all of us make mistakes. Now, so, so, so it's not you I'm talking to, I'm also talking to me. Pastor Pam and I, you know, when we were thinking about who was gonna preach this sermon, we actually flip a coin. Did you know that? Every Sunday we flip a coin. Well, I think the coin is always to her favor because I'm preaching just about every Sunday. But anyway, um, but anyway, so, but when we look at this, we, we see the, the importance of what it means to live a holy life. Isaiah, the great prophet, who remembers the great prophet Isaiah? 
Isaiah was a holy man and had his message to, to call out to the people of Israel that God was yearning to restore them and to turn from their ways and to come back to God. And, and Isaiah always gave that message of hope. But Isaiah, we read about him and we find out that, that he wasn't perfect either. And Isaiah goes into the throne room of God and he's seeing all these images of the heavens that are indescribable. But what he knows is that he's in this holy of holy places and he is at awe of what's going on. And you would think that if you're standing in the presence of God in the throne room of heaven, you would think, wow, this is a great thing. Kind of like that song, I can only imagine. I can only imagine what this would be and how great it would be. But Isaiah's words are, oh no, I'm ruined <clears throat> because I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a man that doesn't always speak the truth. And I'm a man who uses his mouth and his words that don't honor the way of God. So we find out, we, we know that Paul, you know, the great apostle Paul, that, 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 that we know that, that he was a man that, that gave birth to churches and God did miracles through his life. But we know that Paul was also impure and he struggled with impurities. And he says that he called it like a thorn in his side. And we don't really know from the scriptures exactly what that was. We just know, some thought it was conceit, some thought it was, you know, a, a sexual temptation. We just don't know what it is. But he says that he struggled with that and we realize that Paul was impure but yet he strove for holiness in God. Jesus, the gospels tell us that Jesus, God in the flesh, here on earth, is tempted in many ways in all the ways that you and I are tempted. And yet we see these things that are, that are coming through, these things that are happening. Holiness, it's not about behavior. And that's kind of what we've made it for too long in the church. And we've said that if you just abide by this, this set of rules and regulations, if you just do this, this, and this, and you avoid doing this, that, and the other, that we somehow tell people, if you will just do these lists the way that we tell you, then you're living a life of holiness. But we've had it wrong. Because holiness, it's about submission to God in everything. So everything that there is about us is a submission to God. So I wanna, I wanna use an acrostic this morning. I'm gonna take the word pure, P-U-R-E, and I wanna kinda give you some points to think about as we think about what purity means or to live a pure life of God. So, so let's start with the first letter, P. That stands for passion. Have a passion for godliness. I mean, how many of us can say that we have a passion for godliness. How many of us can say that, um, that, 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 that we're passionate about God for everything? And I think that it's a challenge for us. But I think one thing that we can agree with is, is that every person in the room is passionate about something. <clears throat> you may not be passionate what I'm passionate about or vice versa, but, but all of us could say, I'm passionate about this one thing. Some of us in this room, we're passionate about politics. We're passionate about, about how we're seen and labeled. We wanna be labeled as a conservative or we're passionate about, we wanna be labeled as a moderate or we're passionate about, we wanna be labeled as a progressive. We find out other ways and things that we're passionate. We're, we're passionate to make sure that, that our, our Twitter and our um, Facebook pages have all these Christian symbols that, that tell the world that we're Christians, but, but are we really passionate about God? Are we really passionate about that? We want to tell people that, that we're passionate about ourselves and we wanna promote ourselves, but are we promoting and are we telling people about Jesus? Where are we with this? 
In, in Romans uh, 12, Paul writes a letter to this church, and this church is really struggling. It was, a, it was a place made up of what were called pagans, and a pagan is someone who, who chased after a false god, that worshiped idols, that, that, that just um, did things to themselves that were idolatry, and they weren't worshiping the one true God, they weren't worshiping God in Jesus Christ, but something else. And Paul is writing to this church in Rome, and they're dealing with all of these challenges about what it means to be a new Christian, a new follower of Jesus. <clears throat> and Paul says to them, there's something you need to know that's really important here. And they said, in order for us now, now that we have given our lives to Jesus, what do we do? Do we still make sacrifices on the altars uh, to these other gods, even though we're following Jesus? But listen to what Paul writes here. He says, therefore, I urge you. He's saying, I beg you. I mean, think about it. When you're, when you're begging somebody, when you're on your knees and, and you're just in tears and you're begging, please, please hear what I'm saying. Please understand, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Let them be holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And Paul is bringing this in. But I think a lot of us is that, that the reason why we don't pursue purity, the reason why we don't pursue a pure life is because we find ourselves in those situations where we're not wanting to pursue holiness. We're not wanting to pursue a passion for godliness. Now listen, like you, I've missed the mark. I'm not perfect. I miss the mark all the time. Um, and there, there are times in my life where, where I get to that point where I say, you know, um, God, I, I really want to pursue you. God, I want to, to live my life in you. God, I want to love you. And then I'm going to do whatever you say. I'm going to answer your call. And whatever your bidding is, I, you can count on me. And then sure enough, the next morning I wake up and the first thought in my mind is, how can I indulge the flesh today? I know I'm not alone. And you're not alone either. But this is a challenge and a struggle that we all go through. But Paul says to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice and holy and pleasing to God. And, and with that comes some irony because he says offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Usually sacrifices are things that are killed, aren't they? But he says a living sacrifice. So Paul is calling us to live a life and says that basically that all in who we are, that our life should reflect the holiness of God in all that we do. Why is this important? Because Paul makes a distinction between our bodies and he says that our bodies must be living sacrifices um, because it, before God because it is through our bodies that sin comes. And when we see a transformation of our body, when we see a transformation of our mind, that we know that we have drawn closer to God. Now some of us might think when we hear Paul write these words, we might say, well wait a minute, that's impossible. I, I know I'm going to sin. But Paul says part of, part of being holy, part of being pure is to know that when we do sin, that we repent. What is repentance? Repentance means to change direction. Literally, in the Hebrew word, it means to change direction. Sin means that we've missed the mark. So if we've missed the mark, we're to change direction so we can get back on the path back to the mark. 
So Paul is, is saying that, that we need to do something with this, and part of that is confessing our sin, and it's repenting. And James writes about this. He says, confess your sins one to another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Paul would say, have a passion for godliness in a sense that it is so deep and the depth of that is so critical that as you see when you're missing the mark, <clears throat> that you repent of that and that you get yourself back onto the path. The U stands for understanding. It means to understand who we are as Christ's followers. So have a passion for godliness, and the second piece is to understand who we are as Christians. You see, we can come to church on Sundays, we can even serve, we can um, do the, the works of the flesh in the life of the church, meaning we're doing things in that, but, but does that mean that we're pursuing purity? Does it mean we're pursuing holiness? Um, the question is, is, is what am I doing in my life and how is my life changing so that my life is becoming what God has created me to become? The scripture says we're all born into the world as sinners. Not one of us in this room is better than the other. Not one of us in this room has a greater chance of being loved by God more than the other. That at the foot of the cross, the field is level. But what we see with this is that coming into a life of Christ is discovering and coming into light. In John chapter three, we, see, we meet a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is profound. He is a, he's a Pharisee. He is a person who knows the Hebrew laws. He knows what it means and is supposed to uphold that. And his job is to make sure that, that other Jewish folks are following the law, so to speak. But Nicodemus realizes that there's something that's missing in his life. And Jesus comes into his life and he, he begins to discover that Jesus truly is of God. And I love what John says. John uses light and dark imagery all the time in his gospel. And he says that Nicodemus goes out into the dark, so he goes out at night to find Jesus. He goes into the dark so that he could get into the light. He could come into the presence of Jesus Christ. And when he's in, the, in this uh, situation with Jesus, Nicodemus begins to ask some very important questions. And he begins to ask about salvation. He begins to ask about heaven. And, and Jesus says that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. He goes on, to, and then Nicodemus says, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into the mother's womb to be born. And the women said, amen, okay? So, so what do you mean, Jesus? What, is this, what does this mean? And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and he says this. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit <clears throat> gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised, Nicodemus, at my saying that you must be born again. You see, just because we're born into a church family doesn't mean we're born again. Just because we attend church doesn't mean we're born again. We, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to basically transform our life, to be accepting of that. And the way to the life of purity is to let go of our own desires, to let go of our own agendas, and allow ourselves to be connected with Christ. But here's the beautiful thing. Paul says that, that when we accept Christ as our Lord, we become co-heirs with Jesus Christ in all things. So everything that Christ is over, everything that's connected with Christ, when you become a believer in Christ, you are a co-heir in everything there, that it is about Jesus. Let me give you an example. Let's, let's say Mark Miller here. Mark, wave your hand. 
Okay, Mark, let's say Mark's dad is a kajillionaire, okay? Uh, John, is kajillionaire a true financial word? Yeah, could be, it means it's huge, okay. So, so Mark's dad is a kajillionaire, and, and I have no rights to anything to Mark's dad's kajillionaire status. But let's say Mark comes to me and says, Bob, I want you to share, Mark, you're a nice guy, I want you to share in my kajillionaire inheritance that my dad has for me. Now, I didn't earn it, um, I can't advocate for it, but because the son has given me a gift from his father, the father, I now am a co-owner of something I don't deserve. But because of his love for me, I'm now connected with that. So, so we see that this is exactly what, what God is doing in his relationship with us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, do, not, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God, that you are not your own, that you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Jesus didn't come to take our old self and give us a new version of it. He came to make us a new what? Creation. He didn't say, I'm just gonna kind of rehab and refurb the old sinful self. He said, I'm gonna make you a new creation. And Paul hits this right on target. And that is that, that we need to understand that we are sons and daughters of the king of eternity. We are the sons and daughters of God. And that's a special connection that we have with Jesus Christ. Here's the R, resisting temptations. So passion for godliness, Understand who we are as Christ followers, resist temptation. So, so I'm not gonna ask, this is a rhetorical question, how many of us in the room have struggled with temptation? Have we ever had a temptation? Of course we have. And, and all of us can say that we've had that. The truth is that, that, that when we know what sin is, then we don't have to have a list to tell us that this is a sin. We don't have to have somebody tell us that that is a sin, but we know what is right before God in all those things. But so often we feel um, really helpless about our temptations. We feel like, well, they just overwhelm us, they just overcome us, and that we don't have a choice or that we don't have um, a way to stop that, those temptations from happening and those, that way it leads to sin. So, so then we begin to say, well, God, you know, if, if you love me enough, you'd stop me from falling for those temptations. So God, are those from you? And James writes this, he says, when we're tempted, we should never say that God is tempting us for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. James then says, but each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, they are dragged away and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Temptations are not what kill us. Our desires, in some instances, aren't what kill us. It's when we take the temptation and the desire and we make it the God of our life. And that's what kills us. That's what the sin is. That we then worship that, that desire that we have in us. Let, let me give you an example. Um, so I would not fall for the temptation of stealing a 10 pound bag of beets, okay? Right, right, yeah, you know what a beet is? Millennials, that's a little red thing that, um, anyway. But, um, so beat, okay? But if you left your keys to your nicely refurbished, pristine 68 Firebird convertible, small block motor, and you left your keys on this front seat and you left the building, 
I might be enticed to become the new lost and found department for the church. And I might be enticed to do something about that. But then I remember what the Holy Spirit says. Bob, you're a new creation. Your old self would want that. Your old self would somehow finagle that. But you're a new creation. And you can't do that. And then I would see the truth that would come. In Hebrews, we find out that, that Jesus faced temptation after temptation after temptation. But the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus conquered the temptation. That he never lost the battle of the temptation. So what that means is, is when we're tempted, when we cry out to Jesus and we say, Lord Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I don't have the strength, but because you conquered the temptation, because you made it go away, because you were able to be strong enough, Lord, give me that strength that I might do the same. And that's exactly what we see when we see this. Here's the last one, E, expect. Expect God to help. Why should we expect God to help? How many times have we called out to God, where are you? Why should we expect God to help? It's very simple. God promises to help. I will be with you always until when? The end of time. The end of the age. I will be with you. Translation, end of the age. I will be with you the whole time that you're struggling with whatever it is you're struggling. That while you're in that struggle, I promise never to, not, to leave you alone. That's end of the age. The end of time. No matter what happens, you can always count on me. And, and I'm there, and I will help you through that. You know, our grandkids visited us not long ago, and um, those of you that have raised children or grandchildren, you know this example. They love to watch their nanny cook, and Patty's in the kitchen, and she's cooking, and, and uh, you know, the stove is on, and, and let's just say Daniel, who is our uh, second grandson, let's just say that he's intrigued by the little flame coming up from the gas burner. And he walks over there, and he wants to like touch it, because wow, it looks really cool, it's blue, and blue can't be hurtful. You know, flame. And, and it's in those instances, if that happens, I'm not gonna just let him go do that. Neither is Patty. We're gonna like judo chop, hey! you know, and, and, and pull his hand away because we care. And God cares about you. God cares about you to the point that God is constantly flooding you with the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is God's presence living in you and God's presence making a difference. Paul says that we are the temple of God. So that means we don't have to come to this building to find the Lord. It means that wherever we go, God is with us. That we don't need a priest to confess our sins to. We don't need a church building to be the only place we can meet God. But the temple of God resides in us wherever we go. Let me, let me just finish with this. If scripture is true, then it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Here's the second one. If scripture is true, then we can seek God's forgiveness and grace. That God doesn't hold on to that and say, no, 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 you can't have this. But it's more of the gates are open and God is constantly flooding us with his grace and his forgiveness. Here's what John writes in his first letter. He says, if we confess our sins, he, is, he God, is faithful and just and, and, and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from what? All, all unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. 
We can't live a life of purity without Christ. And because Jesus is with us, because of him, we can do all things through him.